what would you say if I came this morning and I started, which I guess I am sort of starting, I thought of trying to pull this off like it was real, but I'm not even going to go there. Uh, what if I started by saying, you know what, you should respect my spiritual knowledge because this week I, I was lying on my bed and, and I had a vision. And God met me in a vision, and He gave me a special revelation of who He is that I'm going to pass on to you today. What would you be thinking if I actually started that way? Red flags. I would bet there would be some elders on their way up. And if they didn't, my dad would be on his way up. <laughs> be like, son, right in front of everyone. Son, you did not. Um, you would think I'm a little nuts because that's what, quite frankly, a lot of guys that are nuts trying to take spiritual control and authority have said in recent years. It's really interesting, though, as we come to the text today, at the time, some visions and revelations from God were a sign of spiritual spirituality and were a sign that God was speaking to them. At least that's how culture interpreted it. And so if you were a traveling teacher, one of the things you would do to earn credibility is talk about how God met you in some way and how you had a vision in some way. And so for them, we think he's a kook, kook, however you say that. For them, they think, oh, he's a spiritual hero. And so we, we have to understand that coming to today's text. Maybe today it would be someone standing up here that you don't know and they walk up and say, yeah, you know. It was a tough week. I only got through two systematic theologies this week. And I actually understood them. And, you know, if I had more time, I could have memorized more than just half of one of them. What is that doing? It's trying to brag and boast of of spiritual acumen, of, of how mature and how knowledgeable the person is. And that's what the teachers were doing through these visions. And so Paul is facing this, and Paul is facing an accusation that says, you're not quite as spiritually mature. Where's your vision? Where's your revelation? Oh, God hasn't met you? Now keep in mind, had Paul had visions? Interestingly enough, he had. How was he saved? God met him in a vision on the road to Damascus. He met Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, what are you doing? And he's like, I'm going to kill Christians. He's like, no, you're not. And, you know, and, and God met him in that way. And we have with Paul, he had visions of, of needing to go to Macedonia and the Macedonian man. And he had times where the, the Holy Spirit said, don't go that way. And we have over and over these things. The interesting thing about Paul is he didn't make it a point. He didn't need to brag about it. He didn't make it an issue. And so now that the Corinthian church is making it an issue, we come to the text today and he's going to go there. And he's going to go there in a completely different way because the teachers of the time are like, look how great and spiritual I am. This happens. And Paul says, well, yeah, it's happened to me, but actually I'm a failure in some things or I struggle in some things. Not the thing you would usually do to commend yourself. And wow, what practical application this text has for us today. As Paul says, it's not about how mature or godly I need to appear, but inside I'm a sinner like you are and I'm struggling in a sinful, fallen world with the things that are happening. And we all come this morning with trials and struggles. No one here is perfect. 
and we come wondering, how do we do that? Do I need to put on a face to minister at Village? Do I need to pretend I'm perfect and somehow present this huge godly image? And we're going to find out from Paul, he says, actually, I have a thorn in the flesh. I have something I struggle with and it won't go away and I'm still working through that. And that's why I'm qualified, he says, to be your pastor, to talk to you. And so he takes the whole vision thing and trying to look mature and he turns it to say, actually, I need Jesus and I need his grace and his grace is flowing through me. And so let me minister out of that. And that's where we come to the text today. And this is a a personal text for Paul. And I think it's a personal text for most of us in this room. Anyone touched by trials in the last two weeks? I would bet every hand would go up. I know that we have families that aren't here this morning because of trials this weekend. How do we deal with those things? How do we deal with those in a spiritually mature way that allows God to shine and God's Word and His work to go forward? We need to understand a little bit of the background. If you weren't here last week, we, we, this is sort of part two of Paul's fool's speech, we call it, where Paul is defending himself to the church at Corinth and last week, he addresses the, the idea that these false teachers were saying, well, I'm a Jew, and, and I'm a Hebrew, I'm of Abraham's descent, and, and I'm this godly person. And, and Paul says, well, well, I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite. I descended from Abraham. He goes, so he, he again uses a, a, a commonality or a strength at the beginning, but he quickly turns it to something they wouldn't have thought it was a, a strength. And if you remember last week, The last of those four things is he said, are you a servant of Christ? He goes, I'm a servant of Christ. In fact, I'm a better servant of Christ than they are. And then most of our time last week was this list of 26 things that we would call trials. And we have to understand last week's chapter wasn't about trials or thorns in the flesh for Paul. It was about what it means to be a servant of Christ. Paul willingly chose all those things. And so as he went through that list, he goes, really what it's about is being a servant of Christ and because I'm a servant of Christ, I'm willing to go through all this. And there, there's not a, a, a whining in, in chapter 11. It's more of, I chose this because I'm a servant of Christ. And so he, we come to chapter 12, the second half of his speech. He's going to do the same thing. He's going to talk about some strengths that the world thinks, and he's going to quickly turn those to weaknesses and how God works through weaknesses. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. Let's dig through this text Mind the riches of this text. I was telling the elders this morning, I pray that this text encourages you and I pray it steps on our toes all at the same time because that's what it's done for me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's a black hardcover Bible under a chair, either right in front of you or under your chair. You're welcome to take that out, turn to 2 Corinthians. About three quarters of the way through, you'll find it. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. And at the beginning, the first six verses is, is Paul sharing about his vision. And, and again, he's sharing his strength, but he's using it as a platform to get to his weaknesses where God will shine. And so this first part is sort of the this, this setup. Paul reluctantly and humbly shares about his vision to counter the false teachers. Paul reluctantly and humbly shares about his vision to counter the false teachers. Let's read these six verses and then dig through it. I must go on boasting. And, and 
right there from the start, some of your translations might translate that differently. It's not, I must, because I just have to talk about myself. It's, I must, or out of necessity, I have to go on boasting. It's, it's actually a, an idea of reluctance, but it's necessary because of where you're at to church. And because, because this church at Corinth was believing these false teachers, he goes, I have to do this. This is necessary. Though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So right from the start, you're like, whoa. That's a really strange passage. But let's, let's unpack it and see what Paul is doing. He's countering again the teachers and the teachers' accusations are actually they're, they're self-puffing up that they've had these visions and Paul hasn't, so he must not be as close to God. As we, break, as, as we go through it, he starts by saying there's nothing to be gained by it personally for him. This isn't advantageous. It isn't what I would normally do. But because I have to for you, because it's necessary, I'll go there to the visions and revelations. Garland wrote, even though boasting is not really advantageous or beneficial, nevertheless, Paul will move on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Why? And I loved his wording here, which is why I'm using it. Why? Because much more could be lost if Paul does not somehow cancel out the seductive megalomania of his rivals. I just wanted to use the word megalomania. But his rivals were trying to take power through this. And so Paul is countering that. Because it's seductive to follow a leader that is in tune with God and has had this new revelation from God. And he was watching them fall into that. He goes on to say, okay, I'll go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And, and he starts and he tells this story in third person form. And it's a really interesting way of telling it because right from the start, our first thought is this isn't Paul. He's talking about someone else. And so, so who is this? And there's a couple of different theories. And, and one is that this might have been an associate of Paul and, and someone Paul is talking about. Another theory is, well, maybe he's just making it up and, and using it as an illustration. But most, most that have studied this would say, and I would agree with them, that this is probably Paul talking about himself, but in a little bit of a different way. And you might say, well, why would he be doing this? That's just sort of weird. Again, it may be weird to us, but it would not necessarily have been weird to them. And what he's doing is, is probably out of, out of humility and modesty, not making himself the hero of the story, but yet coming in the back door and saying, yeah, I, I have had these visions, but, you know, it's not about me. And so by using the third person, it's a way of actually separating himself out from the story. And also this happened 14 years ago. One author said it's sort of like he's boasting about that Paul, but the current Paul that's serving them, he wants to detach from that. And, and, and I think in their way of thinking, that was exactly what was happening here. Keep in mind, boasting is the idea of proclaiming confidently or, or 
defending yourself. And it's not so much this prideful arrogance, but it's this idea of, well, I'm going to proclaim who I am and defend myself. One of the reasons I, I think it's Paul is he, he uses this to leverage his talk about his weaknesses. And he sort of slips up. And, and in 5, he says, my weaknesses, but then if I wish to boast, it would be true. And that, that's, okay, this is probably Paul. But then in verse 7, he goes on to say, so to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. That, that's the key that we know it's Paul right there. Because he says, actually, to, to keep me from pride and arrogance, from these visions, God has left me weak. And so this is Paul, and, and we have to read it that way. And, and so Paul says, I know a man who in Christ, for, who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. And so this was before his missionary journeys, but seven, eight, nine years after his conversion in that time there. And when we think of third heaven, and, and we need to understand what he's saying, there, there's all different kinds of ways Jewish thought would have thought of heaven. They had, some people would talk of three heavens or five heavens or seven heavens. One author was able to quote someone that had hundreds of heaven in their, their theology. But this is probably so one of the traditional ways of thinking of heavens or using heavens was three heavens. And the first heaven was the atmosphere, the clouds, the sky that we see. The second heaven would have been the, the stars at night, the universe, the physical realm, but out beyond the earth. The third heaven would have been presence with God. That is where God dwelled and the Holy Spirit dwelled. And, and one of the ways we know that, again, the text will so often interpret itself and give us clues. I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. And so we know that this is paradise. This is where God was. And, and Paul here is saying, I, I have met with God. I have had visions with God. But I just haven't, I haven't focused on it. He hasn't told anyone about this for 14 years. And now he brings it out because it's necessary. A couple times he mentions whether in the body or out of the body. And, and we don't want to get hung up on that, but basically Paul is saying, I don't know if I was physically taken up to heaven or if it was just my spirit out of my body. Because we know either could have happened. We have examples in Scripture of either happening. But he knows it was real. He was caught up into paradise, and he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. What's really fascinating about this is the false teachers would have made a whole sermon about this visit to God. What does Paul tell us about the details? About that much. It's not his focus. He doesn't want the focus to be on him and his experience. He says, you know what? God God met me. There's things I can't tell you. Praise God. God doesn't tell us everything, by the way. But Paul doesn't want to make it about him here. It's about God. And so he goes on, though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. And those verbs there are, are in the present case. They, he's saying, I want you to judge me on what you're hearing now, what you're seeing in my life now, what you're, the truth that you're hearing from me. Don't base it on whether I've had certain experiences, but look for truth. 
All of that's the setup for the next portion of the passage. And so he humbly and reluctantly shares this vision to counter the false teachers, to give a door in, but he quickly turns it to what is really beneficial. And so in verse 7, and 7 through 10, he begins to deal with thorns in the flesh. And I, I put in your notes, dealing with thorny issues, because that's really what he's talking about. And so he starts with verse 7, and he says, So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. We'll go on in a moment, and and we're just going to unpack these. But Paul here says, yes, it was a vision. It was incredible. There's things that I, I can't even put into human words. But God allowed a thorn in my life to keep me from, from getting a big head over that, for, to keep me from saying my spirituality is, is really good because of this experience to keep me dependent on him. Now, interesting, when we think of thorn, there's all kinds of debate about what that is. And the word there is really something pointed. It could be a pointy stick. It could be a splinter. It could be a thorn. And I think thorn's a great translation of that because the idea is something that is consistently painful or vexing. Have you guys ever taken a hike and gotten something in your shoe? It is annoying. Now, I've had that, and then you take your shoe off, and you dump it out and put your shoe back on, and and it it is annoying when it's still there. And you hike another mile, and you take your shoe off, and sometimes it's these tiny little thorns, and this tiny thing can just annoy and annoy and annoy. What what I've found in my life is the, the big things aren't so much the big deal because I'm sort of, okay, I need to trust God in the big things. It's the little annoying things that frustrate me, that get under my skin, that go day after day after day after day with no resolution that just make me want to scream. And Susie's probably heard me scream sometimes. I just want this to stop. That's the idea of a thorn in the flesh. Something that frustrates or causes trouble in the lives of an individual over and over and over again. Now, there's been a lot written on what Paul's thorn was. Well, today I have had this revelation from God. No, no. Um, (laughs) We don't know. And I think Paul intentionally doesn't tell us because a thorn in the flesh can be so many different things. If he said it was one thing, then our, our thoughts would be, okay, God's grace is sufficient for that one thing. But Paul is making a much bigger point to instruct all of us and all of the church. You know, some of the theories of what it is, and it's okay to talk about that, but some of the theories, some people think it was spiritual harassment, maybe temptation, or or a temptation to a particular sin that he was weak in that just kept coming and coming and he was struggling to overcome. Some think it was persecution. Those that were coming and attacking him for preaching the gospel and and kept, kept following him, people would follow him and stir up trouble after he was in the cities or actually while he was still in cities, and they'd get kicked out, and he'd go to the next one. And so some have said, maybe that's his thorn in the flesh. Some have said, well, it, it, it's some physical ailment, maybe an eye ailment. Um, at times he said, I write this in my own hand at the end and not the, his scribe doing it. And so, so maybe he had difficulty seeing. Some have said maybe attacks of fever or migraine headaches or stammering speech. Who knows? Some have said, well, maybe it's a mental ailment. 
inner turmoil over the churches keeps coming up in his writing. So maybe that was his thorn in the flesh. Some have said maybe it's depression. Maybe he was prone to depression and just struggled with, with overcoming that and seeing God's joy. Some chronic burden of a debilitating condition. We don't know. My leaning is, is the third one. I know some of you are like, oh, you're, it's always the last one, right? I didn't do that this time. <laughs> My leaning is the third one, a physical ailment for a number of reasons. Number one, it's called a thorn in the flesh or in the body. I think that's a good clue right there. That it's probably something physical. Um, and, and we don't know, though, but in Galatians 4, verses 14 and 15, Paul writes, And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn me or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Just sort of gruesome. But it gives us an idea that at least when he was in Galatia, he had an issue with his eyes and something. And, and they loved him so much that they're like, I'd give you my eyes if I could. And so that, with some of the other clues, I think that's quite possibly what it is. But I'm glad he left it vague. Because you and I deal with all kinds of different thorns in the flesh. And I listed all those op- options because all of those are identified as what a thorn in the flesh could be. And that helps us relate with that, doesn't it? Maybe it's a physical ailment. Maybe it's an ongoing chronic illness that you just can't get over. Whether it be, who knows what it is. And you're, you're fighting this day after day and doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment. And yeah, one doctor's appointment is good, but 20, come on. And it's an ongoing thorn that just wants to, to drag you down. Maybe it's depression. And, and trying to just cope with a fallen world. You know, it it can be all kinds of things. Maybe it's someone at work that you just can't stand, but you can't leave because you support your family. So you have to find a way to deal with that over and over. Maybe someone at home you just can't. No, no, just kidding. Um, Could be all kinds of things. Maybe it's opposition. People that struggle with who you are and and your personality and someone you're at odds with in your personalities. For us, one of our thorns was infertility for 15, 20 years, being poked and prodded, trying to figure out how to deal with this. And all of those things might seem like little things if it happened once, but you take it over time and it has a way of just draining your life out of you, doesn't it? And I would bet everyone in here can identify something like that. I think that's why Paul left it general. Because how do we deal with these things? In a fallen world, we will have to deal with these things. And our choices in how we deal with these things decide whether we're we're putting God on display or putting self on display. Whether we're going to fall into depression and angst over this or whether we're going to be able to move forward. And so Paul here says, So to keep me from being conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations... A thorn was given to me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. A couple of other things. We, we get into some theology here. Who gave Paul his thorn in the flesh? How many say Satan? Okay, I heard that. Anyone say God? Okay, you're both right. 
And this is one of the ways that we, we see this in Job, right? Do you remember who, who, who initiates this conversation about Job? Satan. What does he do? He goes to God and says, see that man? He's only following you because life is really good. Let me test him. Let me throw some trials in his way and he will curse you. And God says, okay, but here's your limits. And, and the theology of this is we have to understand is God can allow things for Satan to do to us. And we may not know why. God doesn't cause those trials. He doesn't cause sin. But he can allow Satan to, to bring those into our lives like he did with Job, like he's doing with the thorn in the flesh. And so, Paul, you have wording that a thorn was given to him in the flesh so he wouldn't be proud. That's God working. But God's using Satan to do his work, which is really cool. I, I love it when, when God, Satan thinks he's winning. Satan's like, huh? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take Paul down. And so God says, okay, because he knows how he's going to be glorified through that. I love it when God does that. And so both are true. God is sovereign. God is in control. God knows the thorn you're dealing with. And God has allowed the thorn you're dealing with. That's hard to say. And Satan is trying to use it to tear you away from God. And God is trying to use it to bring him glory. Never doubt God's sovereignty in thorny issues. And so we see both in this verse. And Paul, point number one there, I don't know if I said that, but God uses thorns to combat pride and self-reliance. God uses thorns, even though they're caused by Satan, to combat pride and and self-reliance. And so Satan's trying to derail Paul's ministry, and Paul uses it to proclaim an awesome God who gives sufficient grace for every situation. But Paul knows he can be conceited. He knows he has a weakness in that area. We also know what God thinks of pride, don't we? God hates pride. In in James 4, 6-8, but he, being God, gives more grace Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Think about what God says about the proud. It doesn't say God doesn't like the proud and gives grace to the humble. What does it say? God opposes. That is an active action. God opposes the proud. Do you want God to oppose you? Let's line up and have a battle, me versus God. No! But pride is something God will oppose. 1 Peter 5, 5 5-6, same thing. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So let me ask this. If God uses a thorn in your life to tear down your pride and to tear down your self-reliance so you'll rely on Him, is that a good thing? Knowing that He opposes pride in your life actively? This is actually an act of grace to bring us to to humble relationship with Jesus Christ. To take away those things that would destroy our relationship with God. And so when we're going through it, when we have a trial that just won't seem like it ever ends, 
one of the questions we ask is, what is God trying to do to my pride? What is God trying to do to my reliance? Am I trusting God to get me through this? Or am I just trying to do it on my own? It's challenging. Helps us see the bigger picture. Paul goes on in verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm going to grab some things. Verse 8 there. Point number two, pray diligently for your situation to be changed, but willingly embrace God's answer. Let me repeat that. Pray diligently for your situation to be changed, but willingly embrace God's answer. Paul says he came to God three different times and and he casually said, God, take this away. No, what does it say? He pleaded with God. There's an intensity here that he's coming to God and saying, this is hard. I don't know how to deal with this. I'm struggling with this. Please take it away. Do you remember someone else that did that three times to God the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, take this cup from me. Take this cup from me, Jesus prayed three times. What was God's answer to Jesus? It's my will that you go to the cross. It's my will that you do this. And what was Jesus' answer? Okay. And he willingly went to the cross. He wasn't surprised by the guards. He wasn't drugged to the cross against his will. He willingly obeyed God. Paul, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it would leave me. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Now catch his response. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. What? And he says, okay. Okay, God. I accept your answer. See, when I read this, there's a couple things here. Number one, it's okay to want God to remove it. I'm not standing up here saying, oh, I I shouldn't be upset about my trials. I shouldn't want them gone. No, trials are trials. Thorns are hard. It's okay to want them removed. I have begged God for things to be removed in my life. But in the end, we need to be joyfully acceptance of His answer. And so there's a couple things in there. Number one, make sure we're praying about our trials. Make sure we're taking our thorns to God in prayer. Diligently. Faithfully. You know, and I would even expand that with some of the other passages. It says, if any of you is sick among you, and the idea is this ongoing sickness, what does it say to do? Go to the elders of your church. Have them pray. Get other people praying. As an elder board, we will often pray with people that ask, Anoint with oil and follow James 5. Say, God, your will be done. It's not a magic cure. It's not, not, we're not about manipulating God. It's about saying, God, your will be done. And we're going to come to you because you've said to come to you. Pray with each other. Get people praying. With, with, with some, of, some of my physical challenges that you guys know, with my voice and my throat, I am so amazed at how many of you are praying for those things. It's hard to talk about. 
but I want the body to be praying. I don't know what God's going to do there. But we need to pray for each other. But here's the deal. We need to willingly embrace God's answer. And God's answer isn't always yes. See, I think so many times we get into this trap that if God answers no, we think God didn't answer. Think about that for a minute. Why why are we thinking that? Because God didn't answer the way I wanted him to answer. God answers no sometimes, and that's just as valid of an answer. You ever tell your kids no? It's just because you're mean, right? (laughs) My kids think that. Like, Dad, you're just a big meanie. We have a joke about who's the nice one and who's the salty one. I don't even know where that came from. And, and I'm always called the salty one. Mom's always called the nice one. I'm trying to change that, but no. Um, <laughs> because I say no. Because, not that she doesn't say no, but as the dad, I step in and give the final decision and say, no, that's not good for you. Don't jump out of the treehouse under the trampoline. Bad. You're not going to make it to the pool. You will die. <laughs> they think about these things. You, you with boys, you know this. And so I say no, and they say, you're mean. What am, I, what am I doing by saying no? I'm trying to save their lives. I'm trying to protect them. When God says no to us, we think, God, you're such a meanie in my life. I didn't get what I want. But God, and catch this, God wants to pour out his goodness and his love and his blessing on you. And he gives us instruction, and he says no Because he knows that that's not going to accomplish that. And he directs us to things that will ultimately be for his good, which leads to our good. We need to accept no as an answer and embrace it. We we can do what my kids do too, and your kids do. Not picking on my kids. Any kids. We can do what they do and say, okay, (laughs) okay. And we can, we, and that's not embracing it. But when we start to realize God is allowing this for our own good, to purge things out of our life, to, to bring us closer to Him, man, that changes how we deal with these things. Don't be resigned to God's answer, but embrace it. It is for His glory and our good. So Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this that it should leave me. And God's answer, it's not going to leave you. But my grace is sufficient for you. And that leads to the third point, trust and act on God's sufficient grace. Trust and act on God's sufficient grace. This is the key verse, and it's the, the verse I have you memorizing this week. What's the answer to trials? What's the answer to thorns? Things that we don't think that we can handle? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And this is a beautiful promise of God. Grace meaning his unmerited favor. And he says, every day I will give you the strength that you need in my grace to handle this. Think of the word sufficient. If his grace is sufficient, what is lacking? Nothing. And so the promise is, God says, I will give you everything you need to deal with every situation in your life. 
Not that we can do it on your own, our own, but through God's grace and his love and his power. Because grace has this idea of because he loves us, he pours out his, his favor on us. He gives us strength to deal with these things. It's really interesting and for, for the language geeks that are here. My grace is sufficient for you. And, and he said, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. This is in the perfect tense, which means it's an action that happens now but continues to benefit us or continues to apply to us for all of the future. And so God here is saying, my grace is sufficient for you and will continue to be and will always be. Isn't that an encouraging word? We sang this morning, your grace is enough. It's from this verse. It's enough. It's sufficient. And so we can come and receive that grace The thorn isn't removed, that's not the answer, but the grace is given and poured out. I put in the point, trust and act on God's sufficient grace. See, trust is only displayed by actions. If we're not willing to act like God's grace is sufficient, then we don't trust that God's grace is sufficient. That makes sense? Trust leads to actions. If I trust that a chair will hold me up, I'll be willing to sit down. But if you see me standing up and I'm like, I trust that chair and I never sit down on it, I don't trust that chair. So when we come to thorns in our lives, we can't be paralyzed by that thorn. It's so easy to just just let that drain all the energy out of us that I'm not going to do anything today. I'm not going to act on that. I'm not going to move forward because what if that's an area of weakness? God says, my grace is sufficient. Don't be paralyzed by it. Treat it as a testimony to God's grace. Point number four. Look for how God's power is put on display in your weakness. Look for how God's power is put on display in your weakness. Let's read verse 9 and 10. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. It's displayed in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, one of the the great things about how this works is that weakness and power work together to show God's grace. Our weakness, His power. And so... The, the thorns that we have, the trials, the things that we are really struggling with, that we just can't get past, those become opportunities to put God's grace on display, to put His power on display. Your thorn might be just about revealing God's power to others. And that's enough. That's really good. Is there a picture up there? What do you see in the picture? It's a Thomas Kincaid classic the bridge what so there's somebody else on it uh, a little hard to see but that's a stormtrooper riding a um, speeder across the bridge that was there in the original right what else do you see you can be obvious I'm, I'm, don't worry about hidden things what A stream, good, yeah, you see a stream. What else? Light? Water? 
Rock, there's a bridge there. I don't know if you know it. <laughs> Trees, right. Okay, so, so great picture, right? Okay, it's, it's the edited version. Some, some gentlemen have Star Wars versus Kincaid, and it's a really cool series. Um, there's some other ones on my door in my office. But you, the picture is the story, right? No one sat there and said, that is an incredible frame. That's a beautiful frame, the way that it's like beveled on the edge and, you know, it has the little cloth thing in there. None of you said that. Why not? I'm going to assume you said because the picture is the point. A lot of people said things. I don't know what you said. Village, you and I, as we go through weakness and trials, we're the frame. And God's glory and his power is the picture. And if we decide to shut down and just just go into our own little shells when we come to trials, we're making the frame the point and not the picture. Does that make sense? God wants to use you and I to put His glory on display. He wants to show His treasure in jars of clay. It's a different way of thinking of thorns. Because when we think of thorns, we think, I can't do this. And our our focus naturally from our natural man is on self. And God said, focus on me. Focus on my power. We have a choice whether to languish under our thorns or to flourish through them. And God says, "I I want you to flourish because of my power. You know, yesterday we celebrated Alva's life. And one of the things that was, was so impactful to me was her testimony during her trial, during the cancer, during the chemotherapy, and that she became this, this sunshine-giving, joy-giving spirit every time she'd went into the doctor. I'm like, no, no, she's the one going through it, and she was going around encouraging all the other impatience. That's using a thorn to display God's glory. And so when we go through things, the question to ask is, how is God going to use this? How is he using it in my life as point number one? But point number four is, how is he going to use this to show his power to others? How am I going to let him use this to show his power to others? If you could do everything on your own, if you were perfect, life was awesome, or as the Lego movie said, everything is awesome, what would your life say about God? Not much. What would it say about you? You're awesome. But if life is broken and we are struggling through trials and we still are getting up every day and we have a smile on our face and we are saying, God has given me enough grace for today and look what God is doing in my life, then it's not about us and it's about God. See, everything's not awesome, but God is awesome. Isaac Watts wrote, and when I survey the wondrous cross, forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. He got it. It's about God's power, his glory, not me. I think of my my two youngest. Do they appreciate God's power working through trials? 
their lives are completely different. They wouldn't be part of our family if it wasn't for some of the thorns. Bigger picture. And God has done incredible things in their life. They know Jesus because of some trials. Don't ignore what God wants to do in that struggle every day. When you can barely get up, when you just want to shut down, God might be doing something so much. God is doing something so much bigger than you. And the last point, quite frankly, the one that annoys me, but it's in God's word. And I don't mean annoys me that it shouldn't be in God's word, but because it convicts me. Delight in your thorn. Delight in your thorn. And in fact, that's a means to experiencing God's power in your life. Catch what he says in verses 9 and 10. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly. And that word includes this idea, or the gladly there is this idea of being glad in it, delighting in it. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. That deals with a heart that goes beyond just acceptance and delighting them. He says the same thing in 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with my weaknesses, or with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. And again, that word content includes this idea of delighting in, accepting happily. That's hard. That's really hard. Interesting. In verse 9, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Do you catch the next words there? So that the power of Christ might rest upon me. It's a causative statement. We delight in our weaknesses. We boast of them gladly. And then we see God's power in our lives. And the implication here of a causative statement is if the first part of the cause doesn't happen, does the second part happen? No. And so many times we miss being able to see God's power in our lives because we're not delighting in our thorns. That's hard. I'd love to say that I've done that really well. But there's some weeks with stuff I'm going through that I'm just pretty bitter. And there's some weeks that I feel like, okay, God, you've got this. And I'm realizing that that process is part of my sanctification. The process of going through a thorn in the flesh, the process of going through these things that are hard is that God is sanctifying us over time. And I pray that there's more weeks that come along that I'm like, God's got this. I'm good. Let's go. And less weeks that I'm frustrated. Amazing passage of God's grace, of his strength. Thank you for a grace that is poured lavishly on us, that is extravagant and more than enough and sufficient for everything we face. Lord, help us to take the trials that are in this room right now this morning, the things we're struggling with, and direct those back to be frames of the picture of what you're doing. Lord, I pray that you'd give grace and strength to each person here, to the ones struggling physically with illnesses, chronic illnesses, to those caring for people with chronic illnesses, Lord. I pray for those that are in job situations that seem impossible and just go on and on and on. I pray for the young moms who are dealing with little sinners all day. (laughs) And it's hard. Lord, I pray that your power would pour out on this congregation. 
and we'd be a people that embrace your answer and embrace your grace and tell people how great and awesome our God is. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.